Hi, this is Stavros Yanuka, welcoming you back to Wise Words, the podcast where we discuss all things education with some of the world's leading thinkers and doers in the field. Wise is an initiative of the Qatar Foundation, dedicated to building the future of education through innovation. This episode is the third and final episode in a limited series that tees up the Wise Global Summit that is taking place in Doha and online from the 7th to the 9th of December 2021. The theme of the summit is Generation Unmute, reclaiming our future through education. Mental health and social and emotional development were for a long time considered outside the remit of education, beyond the narrow traditional definitions of character building adopted by certain elite private institutions. This reticence to engage with the issues no doubt partly reflected popular misconceptions around the topics. For example, mental health sufferers have in the past been, and in many contexts still are, stigmatized as abnormal or defective, whereas emotional development was shunned as a soft topic. Possibly all right for girls to engage in, but not something that men in the making should be overly concerned with. Thankfully, in the past decade and a half, progressive educators from around the world have changed both attitudes and practices around both topics, offering a far more nuanced understanding that approaches social emotional development and good mental health as foundational for all learning and development. Moreover, contrary to popular misperceptions, social and emotional learning is not about indulging the whims of children in order to bolster self-esteem at any cost. Rather, it is about acknowledging the reality that we are emotional beings and learning how to recognize and modulate our emotional states, particularly in a social context where on a daily basis we are interacting with other emotional beings. But I am very far from an expert in this field, which brings me to my guest on this podcast. Mark Brackett is the author of Permission to Feel and the founding director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence and a professor in the Child Study Center at Yale University. Mark has published over 120 scholarly articles on the role of emotions and emotional intelligence in learning, decision-making, creativity, relationships, health, and performance. He's the lead developer of RULER, an evidence-based systemic approach to social and emotional learning that has been adopted by more than 2,000 schools, from pre-K through high school, across the United States and in other countries. Mark has received numerous awards and is on the board of directors for the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, CASEL. He's also the co-founder of OG Life Lab, a digital emotional intelligence learning system for businesses. He has consulted regularly with corporations like Facebook, Microsoft, and Google on integrating emotional intelligence principles into employee training and product design. During our conversation, we discussed what has been keeping Mark busy during the past 18 months of the pandemic, Mark's own emotional makeup, the impact of the pandemic on our understanding of the importance of social-emotional learning and mental health, the roots of emotional neglect in Western philosophy, Mark's early efforts to develop a social-emotional curriculum, if our newfound appreciation for social-emotional learning and mental health might be leading us towards a brave new world scenario of mandating happiness or a coddling of young minds, in an effort to shield them from negative emotions, and many more topics. Please join me in conversation with Mark Brackett, and be sure to register for the WISE 2021 Global Summit to hear more from Mark and other leaders in social-emotional learning. Details, as always, are in the show notes.
Welcome to Wise Words. Delighted to be here. My day job is I'm a professor at Yale in the Child Studies Center, and I'm also the founder and director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. And I guess two other things about me is I'm the author of a book called Permission to Feel and lead creator of an approach to social and emotional learning called Ruler. Tell us a little bit about what's been keeping you busy over the past 18 months. Obviously, these have been extraordinary by uh, any stretch of the imagination. You know, the lion's share of our center's work in education. And we've been studying teachers and other school professionals for the last decade or so, but more so, you know, during the last couple of years, trying to unpack, you know, what are the feelings that people who work in schools, you know, have and how are those feelings impacting their performance, their burnout, their inspiration, and the list goes on. And so we've been really trying to unpack that here in the United States to better support schools in helping teachers, you know, get through these difficult times because, you know, a stressed out teacher is a stressed out classroom. A stressed out principal of a school is a stressed out entire school community. So I've been writing papers on that, doing research on that. And I guess, you know, from my own personal perspective, trying to figure out how to deal with my own feelings as a, as a leader, you know, who is working a lot from home, has a big team, you know, we're, we're at 60 people at the Center for Emotional Intelligence. And so for the last year and a half, two years, I've been leading a center from my kitchen table. <laughs> so, uh, just trying to make sense out of it all. Yeah. And so, so you know, you, usually when we ask the question, you know, how are you? It's, it's, we don't really expect a sincere response, right? So, my book. Yeah. <laughs> so if I were you, if I were to ask you, I mean, as, as, as a leader, what are the sort of the, I don't know, top three, five things that you've learned about yourself and your emotional, I guess I don't want to say state because we have various emotional states um, at, at any given moment, but but your, let's say your emotional landscape maybe, or makeup, if that's a, a correct expression to use. What the, about a lot of things there. My emotional makeup is, you know, neurotic and a worrier about everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's probably highly correlated with how I felt over the last year and a half. You know, I'm I'm blessed that I am someone who is quite, you know, neurotic about things. I worry about everything, but I'm also a chronic optimist. And so um, I feel like I've been living in this world of the world's going to come to an end, but we're going to figure out a way to help everybody get through it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, I feel blessed that I have a very good life, that uh, I have all the, the resources that I need to thrive and survive. And I I think mostly about people during the pandemic who have not had that and what we as a society, as a world need to do to support people who are not as fortunate. There, there was this, I guess, outpouring early on in, in the pandemic, you know, this, this sort of outpouring of, of, uh, of empathy, as, you know, especially those of us who, who as you point out, are, are on the fortunate side of, of the equation. Um, you know, t- towards those who, you know, who, who are not, you know, whether that's uh, what became, you know, known as the frontline uh, worker, you know, the nurse, the delivery guy, you know, the security guard. How, how much of that do you think, or the teacher for that matter, how much of that, you know, was, was genuine, sincere and is, and is sort of carrying over now as we begin, you know, to, to approach, at least in the developed world, the, the, the end game to this pandemic? Are you talking about this, the role of empathy here in terms of... I, I'm just, well, you know, so a lot of us started, you know, speaking in, 
you know, in, in more sort of empathetic terms uh, about those who, who were not as lucky, not as fortunate. And I'm just wondering how much of that is, do you think was sincere in, in, uh, and will carry over, I guess? You know, we, the, the challenge is that we all go back to our baseline pretty quickly. You know, people's kind of habits and personality traits kind of take over once government mandates change. You know, we're just, we're creatures of our old habits. I worry about mask wearing in public and other places where there's still high COVID rates and people thinking, you know, well, it's not me. And I was just on the phone with a friend of mine this morning, early this morning, who is, you know, a health expert who just got COVID after being vaccinated. And, you know, she's doing okay, but it's still like, you know, you got to be careful. I do think though, you know, in the spirit of the work, you know, of social and emotional learning and emotional intelligence, that this crisis did open up an opportunity for people to take seriously their emotional lives. You know, the mental health across the globe seems to have diminished quite a bit during these times, you know, yeah. according to things that I've looked at. And, you know, there are differences in gender and power status in terms of who takes this work seriously. And what I found, interestingly enough, is that leaders and men in particular um, have have reached out to me saying, you know, I never really thought this soft skill stuff was that important. But, you know, now that I'm working from home and I'm my, I'm, you know, I'm a lawyer, but like I'm actually my son's co-teacher and I'm also the custodian in my household. Mm. I'm the tech support person. I'm also this. And my life is much more, you know, complex than it was prior. And I've had a lot of feelings and I'm not sure how to deal with those feelings. Um, so can you teach me a little bit more about emotional intelligence? <laughs> and so, I don't know. I feel as if I hate to say that a pandemic would create an opportunity, but I do think it has in many ways. Yeah. I mean, certainly a lot more people are aware of mental health uh, as an issue than, than, than in the past. And, and certainly a lot more people are talking about it. So maybe now, now is a good time just to sort of may, maybe ask you to make, clarify some terms, right? So, for example, is, you know, is there a difference between feelings and and emotions, or are they are they essentially synonyms? You know, for most of us on a daily basis, I think it's easier to just make them a synonym. You know, some of the stuff is you know scientists trying to be smart um, and have these like differential kind of explanations from a psychological standpoint. You know. What we would say, however, is that an emotion is more of an automatic response to some kind of stimulus. Someone calls you and gives you bad news and you're shocked or you're overwhelmed or you get scared. That's a feeling, you know, is more kind of your private experience about an emotion. And so let's say someone is mean to you and you feel hurt. Your feeling might be, I feel like this person is not very kind. And I don't really want to be around them anymore. It's more kind of an evaluative. And so they're all important, just like moods are important. You know, moods are different than feelings and emotions. And, you know, moods are kind of that state of being where you are. It's kind of lower in intensity, but longer in duration. Like you're just in a bad Ooh. mood for the day or yeah, you're like, oh, I'm optimistic today, but you don't really know why. Yeah, so it's, it's almost like the color or the hue of your emotional state at, at a at a you know over a period of time last year mark you were you were kind enough to publish a a chapter in uh, in our learning uh, disrupted learning reimagine 
uh, ebook. I'm going to quote from from your chapter. You said the Bible, the Stoic philosophers, and almost all of Western literature, philosophy, and religion taught us that emotions are unreliable, inconvenient, idiosyncratic sources of information. That's that's a pretty sort of damning <laughs> indictment of <laughs> of of you know, the, 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 the Western canon, right? But what, why, I mean, why do you think that? And why, what's at the root of this, I guess, neglect uh, of, of emotion in, in the sort of Western way of, of looking at and interpreting the world? Well, some of it is based in early science that, you know, you can't measure an emotion, right? It's like this, yeah. it happens in your brain that nobody knows where it comes from. It's a lot simpler to measure behavior, right? Because it's objectively verifiable for the most part. And so I think now that we have a science of emotion, science of emotional intelligence, we're giving it more um, credence. But the, um, you know, historically, you just see it, you know, it's about, you know, vulnerability makes you weak. You know, imagine, you know, being a male leader or even a female leader, you know, during the pandemic saying, I'm super anxious. I'm not sure what's going to happen. You know, all of a sudden, everybody who works at the company disappears because they think, you know, the person in charge can't even deal with their feelings. And so I think it's a misunderstanding that emotions, especially strong, unpleasant ones, make you incompetent. And I think it's actually not true at all because everybody has feelings, whether they tell you or not, they have those feelings, right? Every big leader in the world, right? They have feelings every day about their family, about the people they work with, about their performance. And the question is, how much of that can we talk about? And it's like the sharing of it, I think, that is the harder part. Because, you know, expectations from society are that, you know, Mark Brackett is the director of the Center for Emotional Intelligence. Right? He's got to be able to deal with his feelings really well. Otherwise, how could he be in such a position? And so for me, it's about being open and honest and say, you know, I am a little anxious about everything that's going on in the world, but guess what? Here's my strategies for dealing with it. So you can be open about your experiences. You just can't make or have everybody who's working for you or your family think they have to take care of you, especially in a leadership position. And how much of of it do you think is also, you know, associated with the fact that historically emotions and feelings were attributed more to to women and, and females? Than than the men, and therefore hysteria, right? Was that was a a term, you know, attributed to women for a variety of reasons, and that hysteria meant you were emotional or emotionally out of control. For men, right, it was always okay to be angry, right? It's a strong masculine feeling. Again, you know, how many of us want to be around someone who's angry all the time? It's not the most enjoyable experience. No, no, and so. I just think that we've created gender rules. A lot of it has to do, at least from the work that I know here in the United States, from social development, right? Parents talk to their kids, their male and female children, in different ways. You know, they, with their young sons, they'll say things like, toughen up, you know, like, boys don't cry. You know, moms will talk more with uh, with their girls around feelings. They'll use more feelings talk even. Yeah, I, I, I mean, whenever I, I have these kinds of conversations, I'm, I'm reminded of a, 
an, an incident when my, when my kids were very uh, young. My daughter, who's the eld- eldest of the two, you know, t- told my son, who's, who's two and a half years younger than, than her at the time, that, hey, you know, listen, you, you, know, you, uh, you know, you hurt my feelings. I can't remember exactly what, you know, what the exchange was. But then he turned around and said to her, you know, quite, quite sternly, he said, look, how, how can I, you know, possibly have hurt your feelings? I, I haven't learned about feelings in school yet. <laughs> so <laughs> that was, or at least that was his defense. <laughs> <laughs> at, at you know uh, at the time at what point did you start getting interested in this as a as a topic of you know of of study and you know and and then and then at what point did you start thinking about well okay this is something that we really need to infuse our, infuse our, into our education systems well you know i had a tough childhood and um i won't go into the details now but I was inspired by my uncle when I was a teenager to do this work. And he was the adult in my life who I really connected with. He was the one adult who did ask me how I was feeling and didn't have a judgment about you know what I shared. And so he was actually developing a curriculum to teach kids about their feelings back in the 1970s. You know, he would practice these curricular activities with me as a kid. We would we would have conversations about feelings like what's the difference between alienation and despair and elation and happiness. And and he helped me get through much of my adolescence. And then when I was in college, kind of figuring out what am I going to do with my life and where do I want to go? I just started reflecting a lot on my relationship with my uncle and I was doing a lot of reading. I decided to call my uncle who is retired now from being a teacher. And um, we wrote a curriculum together. And that was the beginning of my career. And then all of a sudden I realized there's an actual science to this and I can get my PhD in emotional intelligence. And, mm-hmm. and then that was, you know, 20 something years ago now. Okay. So tell us, tell us a little bit about the, that, that first curriculum. What, what are the, the sort of key, key components? And so, we decided to work in middle schools because that's where I was bullied as a kid. It's where I was, I had a lot of strong, unpleasant feelings that I did not feel safe to express. And my uncle was a sixth grade teacher. And so it was just a perfect match. Well, perfect is an interesting story because I was 24 at the time and my uncle was uh, 65. So we were kind of a match that was interesting to watch, right? <laughs> a 24 year old, like fresh out of college, trying to figure out his life with a 65-year-old retired teacher. We had a great relationship and yeah, he was my hero. And so we just decided to take everything that he had done in his classroom for so many years and I was learning about in psychology and, and marry the two. And so we put together this program called Emotional Literacy in the Middle School and it had these, these five steps. The first step was to talk about your own experiences and share those experiences. Like the teacher would start a lesson by saying something like, you know, everyone, when I was a teenager and I wanted to play sports, I was, I really had a hard time. I was nervous about, you know, to do that particular sport. And I had all these strong feelings. Has anyone ever felt that way? Sort of like the teacher being a little bit vulnerable about the emotion that she was going to teach. And then have the kids think about their experiences. And then that would lead to um, a link to the curriculum where Julius Caesar had these exact same feelings about Brutus. And imagine had Julius Caesar known that Brutus was actually out to get him. What do you think that would have made him feel? Mm. How would you have responded 
if you knew your best friend was going to treat you that way. Then they would go home and teach their parents the word. Hey, mom, hey, dad, I just learned this new feeling word. It's called alienation. And it means to feel left out and isolated and lonely and sad. I share that I feel this way when this happens. How about you? When have you felt that way? And getting parents an opportunity to talk with their children about these words. And then they would come back and have rich conversations around the strategies. So what can we do with these feelings? How do we prevent Ooh. people from feeling that way in our school? When someone does feel that way, what are the strategies that we can teach them? And so that's called the Feeling Words Curriculum. That was the beginning of our work. And interestingly, what we found was that most of the adults who were teaching kids were not that comfortable with it. Again, because they didn't have an emotion education. They were like, I don't know if I should tell my students that I felt anxious about this or felt despair about this or felt even excited about that. And so we really needed to then rethink our approach to ensure that the adults who were raising and teaching kids understood feelings and their value and developed the skills themselves. And that's the beginning of ruler's history, which is, you know, this idea of we started with kids, we had to go back to the adults and go to the leaders and go to the families and go to the literally here where I live in Connecticut, we're trying to make Connecticut the first emotionally intelligent state by working with community stakeholders, the Department of Education, the teachers unions, just everybody speaking the same language around this. And and what if I were to ask you, I mean, what what success looks like? What does the the emotionally intelligent state do differently from from what it does, I guess, today? Well, interestingly enough, I asked this when I was writing my book, I would ask children when I go visit them. And this one, I remember this one boy in fourth grade, he's like, sir, there would be world peace. So, <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm trying to listen to yeah. kids. <laughs> What does it look like? You know, look at all the data, right? It looks like we have a lot less kids being suspended from school for behavioral challenges. It looks like we have a a lot more, many more teachers who feel engaged as opposed to burnt out and wanting to leave the teaching profession. It looks like students who are feeling curious and inspired as opposed to tired and bored and stressed. It looks like drug and alcohol problems declining significantly. It looks like mental health problems declining significantly. It looks like, you know, we have problems with racism in our society, that diminishing. So I just think the vision of our center is to use the power of emotions to create a healthier and more equitable, innovative, and compassionate society. And so my hope is that our vision becomes a reality. I mean, do you you worry sometimes though that you're you're maybe investing too high a kind of expectation of, of of what you're trying to achieve because i mean you're you're it, you're not quite at world you know world peace but you're, you're getting close with that you know that list of, of things you're hoping to eliminate right i really don't think it's out of touch with reality i think it's going to take probably longer than my my time on this planet but um we can create we can look at the metrics you know we can do it one child one classroom, one school, no one community at a time. Having now been working with schools for 20 years, I have seen just tremendous, tremendous difference in schools that take this work seriously. They're different places. They're places where kids see each other, where teachers don't feel they have to have power over children, where the relationships are clear and positive, um, where there's greater empathy and concern, where there's perspective taking 
you know, I think where every child can be their true self. And, and to what, because, you know, I, I can imagine, you know, a pushback to what you're saying might be that you're, you know, we may be nudging ourselves or, or talking ourselves into a kind of Aldous Huxley, brave new world kind of situation where we're almost mandating happiness or how, so, so how, how do you accommodate for the existence of, of different kind of emotional, maybe archetypes. Again, I, I don't have the language, but, but I, you know, I think I, I hope I'm, yeah. <laughs> so how, how do you, know, how do you allow for the Winnie the Pooh scenario where, you know, there's an Eeyore, there's a Tigger. Right? <laughs> See, you're getting it exactly the, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to point you out here. So yeah. you're interpreting, right? This yeah. vision to use the power of emotions to create a healthier, more equitable, innovative yeah. society as one where I'm saying everyone needs to be happy. I'm not saying that. I'm being, yeah. I'm, I'm standing firm on to use the power of emotions to create a healthier, psychologically, physically healthier society. Yeah. doesn't mean everybody's happier, right? Equitable, that just means that everybody's getting what they need, especially the people who are, you know, in worse off scenarios. It means innovative, where we can use our emotions to be creative and make beautiful change in society. Yeah. It means compassionate, where we can just get along. Um, we don't have to like everybody. We just have to get along better. And I am actually the anti-happiness guy, to be honest with you, because I think that's an unrealistic goal, You know, especially Ooh. during the pandemic. What are you going to just tell people, like, just cut out your anxiety and fear out of your brain and be happy all the time? It's ridiculous. And I do yeah. think... And it's not even, I think it's from the research, you know, 60 to 80%, depending on the research of our quote unquote optimism, happiness, you know, is biological. It doesn't mean that we can't try to see things in a more mm-hmm. optimistic way. And importantly, from an emotional intelligence perspective, there's no such thing as a bad emotion. Honestly, yeah. from, all emotions can be beneficial or detrimental to your goals in life, you know? So if you, or a parent who is like, everything's fine, honey. Don't worry about a thing. Your kid might be being bullied. Your kid might be being bullied in school. And yeah. you just have those colored glasses on. And you're like, no, honey, everything's going to be fine. No, mommy, everything is not fine. <laughs> I need help. So like, we don't want that. Nor do we want someone to always have the perspective of, you know, nothing is going to go right. And life is just endless uncertainties where there's no hope, right? Helping people have greater emotional balance is pretty important. Helping people learn strategies to manage all emotions. You know, if I'm super happy, which is not too common, just so you know, because it's not in my gene pool. But um, for me, I, I find strategies to bring myself to that place. I can stay there for a while, but then my baseline is kind of that, I call it the green quadrant of the mood meter. It's my calm, tranquil, peaceful, a little bit pessimistic, a little bit overwhelmed and anxious, um, but I'm monitoring it. And I'm asking, yeah. myself, you know, is how I'm presenting myself, is how I'm feeling, biasing the way I'm doing things, influencing my relationships? If it is, then I try to correct. I, I suppose, you know, what you might want to be getting at is is a, a kind of a baseline equanimity. Is that something that, I mean, if you think of a where you would want the default to to rest for most people. That's tricky. I think that we should yeah. help people to be who they are, um, because that's that's whoever you admire up there above, right? That's their decision um, in terms of you know yeah. personality and and temperament. But what we should allow people or help people is to be aware of 
like get, get, have language for their experiences and understand how they are impacting people and to see whether or not it's working or not and sort of modify and modulate accordingly. And now you, I mean, so, so you, you've, you've coined this term in the book, I, I believe, uh, call that you want to be an emotion scientist or you want folks to, I guess that's what you're getting at here, right? It's really to be able to parse your, your emotions and your feelings I guess, as in in a way, a scientist would you know try to break down a problem or an issue into its component parts. Say say a little bit about what does what does that look like? And so, all right, you're a parent um, who is an emotion judge, right? Not an emotion scientist. Your kid comes up, I hate school. I'm never going back to school. You get activated by your kid because they're being mean to you. You are observing their behavior and making inferences about their behavior. And you say things like, who do you are? Who do you think you are talking in that way? You have to respect your mother, your father, you know, get to your room. That was, that was what happened to me, by the way. And so that's the emotion judge. They're just taking the behavior for what it is. They're not happy with the behavior. Maybe they're activated by it for whatever reason. And they kind of, you know, punish the emotion scientist parent says, you know, honey, it looks like you're having, some strong feelings right now. How about we take a few deep breaths together or let's take a walk or, you know what? Daddy really doesn't appreciate being spoken to that way. I'm going to go over here for a little while. And when you feel ready to have that conversation with me, we can, I really want to know what's happening, but the yelling and screaming just is not working. Follow up with the kid. So what happened today at school? Oh, um, something happened on the playground. Can you, you want, you want to share a little bit more? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the curious parent is not activated by the behavior. The emotion scientist parent is asking open questions to find out about their to find out about their child's experience, to then figure out what emotion that child is feeling so they can help support them. That's the goal of my work. Ooh. And um, it takes effort because that's why, you know, when you ask people how they feel, people just say fine, good, okay, busy. But, you know, if you're my son and you say, well, I was bullied on the playground because nobody wanted to play with me and all this happened, then all of a sudden, like, oh, my gosh, my son is being bullied. Oh, my gosh, my son is being alienated. Oh, my gosh, my son feels despair and hopeless. All of a sudden, my life as a parent has changed dramatically, right? Because now yeah. I what I want to do present for my child and really support them in problem solving. And, and that's life. And so, you know, my hope is that we can prevent all that bullying long-term, but at the same time, there's always going to be meanness and cruelty in society. And so as a parent, how do you bond and make a positive attachment with your child so they'll A, be honest with you, and B, how do you help them find the strategies that work best for them based on their personalities? Mm. Do, do you ever, um, I mean, that, that's, that's a good that's a good example, and, and I, I'm sure one that, that you know many parents can can relate to. Do, do you ever feel maybe "feel" is not the right word? I don't know. <laughs> do, do you are you are you ever concerned that again in uh, much of the discourse um, around you know social emotional intelligence is around I guess helping the is always presenting the person who is having these feelings almost as a, you know, I mean, in your example, it's, it's the, the kid being bullied and, and, and do, do you, how much do you, do you think about folks at the other end of the, the spectrum, right? 
I mean, the kid doing the bullying. The same that's, yeah. yeah. You know. all, I mean, that child is also having strong feelings, oftentimes envy, right? Oftentimes jealousy. That yeah. Aware of. They don't have other, <clears throat> you know, saying, I want to yeah. play. I want to talk with you. I'm feeling insecure. No one cares about me. And so they don't have the strategies either. This work, you know, is for all people. And it's also for, you know, you know, not everybody's bullied. I had a terrible, you know, experience in life being bullied, but um, it's for the highly creative person who wants to be an artist and get their art out in the world, but they feel insecure about self-promotion or they don't know how to talk about their work in a way that's inspiring others. They may be very inspired themselves and do creative work, but they they haven't you know developed the underlying yeah. skills to to sell their craft or to market their tools and to deal yeah. with the disappointment in trying to be a successful artist. Because gosh, it's got to be hard trying to be an artist these days. Yeah, no, that that's interesting. I mean, they, you, you know, you you uh, again, that's a good example because you know, I think I think one of the most valuable you know, lessons maybe we, we, you know, we could be imparting in schools is, okay, how do you deal with disappointment? How do you deal with failure? You know, and, and I mean, do, do you feel that sometimes, though, again, the, the, the prevailing, you know, the, the effort not to expose, you know, kids to, to any kind of negative emotion might be pushing us in a direction of, you know, maybe, you know, I'll use a term that um, there's a, there was a book written recently, I'm sure you, you're aware of it, that, you know, the, the coddling of the American mind, right? How concerned are you about, you know, about, about some of the issues raised in, in that book? Very concerned because I think that it will impact people's long-term success. I hear all the time from people, you know, that their employees, you know, are very, are overly sensitive to feedback, you know, and this isn't like the feedback I got early in my career. Let me tell you, it was like, you better change everything. Like this, this model stinks. This is like, who do you, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> old school. <laughs> hey, you know, some of those moments in my career are the ones that stand out mm-hmm. to be the most impactful, you know? Yeah. Um, not necessarily when someone like was diminishing my self-worth, you know, yeah. like we're not the shaming kind of stuff. Cause that's never helpful. But the, you know, where it's like, you got to really, really think this, this is not good. I'm just letting you know, like, this needs a lot of work. And what I hear from people now is that, you know, the slightest feedback is people get insulted by the feedback and you need to be more, you have to be kinder in your responses. And I get that to some extent, but um, I do fear that um, we're not teaching people um, how to be resilient and live in the real world. And I think that the few people who are getting that important education are going to be the ones that are the most successful. Um, but I think far more people could achieve their goals in life if they develop these underlying skills. So, so again, that's, you know, it, in your understanding of, you know, social and emotional learning and education and what you practice is really much, much broader, right. And, and encompasses the whole, you know, the, the whole spectrum. Yeah. I mean, the real world is not like, being in a middle school spelling bee, you know, it's just like, you know, the, anybody who I know who is highly creative and, you know, has really quote unquote made it 
and not just because of their inheritance or because of, the, of nepotism. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of failure. And, you know, I think during those times I failed, I've gone to, you know, sit by myself for a couple of hours and really it's made me reflect. It's made me think more creatively. It's made me think harder. You know, my, I think of my whole career as just one set of failures, you know, because like I try to do this work in schools and then like teachers were like, your job is not to make me talk about my feelings. And I was like, wait a minute. I don't know if that's what I'm saying. Firstly. And secondly, like, why are you so angry? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, and uh, you know, it's like trying to figure this out, you know, and then, and then it was like, no, the leaders, you know, and then they're not, they don't want to have be accountable for this. And then it's the parents and it's like endlessly, you know, family not achieving the goals. And, you know, I have to say that the strong, like the despair or the anger or the fear oftentimes is what motivated me to think more creatively, you know, and push harder. And so to create a life for children where they don't experience these unpleasant feelings is um, putting them at a disadvantage. Yep, good. And just to sort of just to give um, a, a proper attribution, so the, the coddling of the American mind is by Jonathan Haidt. Um, and I hope I'm pronouncing the, the, the name correctly. Yep, no, um, certainly a in, very interesting book and, and thesis that, it, that he presents. And so again, to what extent, you know, do, you know if we go from, you know, the social-emotional learning that you're trying to impart and and we look at you know in in a sense and again i think that these are the points that are made in 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 the book uh, around um I, I guess you know the the use now of trigger warnings and 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 you know the the demand for um safe spaces in you know on college campuses and this whole furor over you know over free speech i mean where where do you come out on on that? And I guess what I'm trying to get at in, in a in a very inelegant way is: do, do you worry that again misinterpreting social and emotional uh, learning and it is is kind of leading us into this this domain where again we're preoccupied with just not upsetting anyone or not having anyone be put in an uncomfortable situation. Yeah, I think that's naive. At the same time, you know, I think that we do have to take a look at our societies, whatever country you're in, whatever culture you live in, to look at what inequities exist. And it's all of our responsibility, and especially the people who are in privileged positions to, you know, ensure greater equity. And so I think, you know, the question is really a, a complicated one, because it really depends on the on the situation you know, and what age group you're talking about. Like all kindergartners need to be safe. You know, we, we should cuddle. Yeah. The, right? we, we need to yeah. cuddle the four-year-olds yeah. uh, throw them into the, you know, into the fire. And, you know, but developmentally, you know, we want to help kids individuate, you know, and find their own ways and help them, you know, take risks that are calculated, that are safe yeah. to you know, achieve their goals. And so, you know, I come from like, it's like the middle path primarily. And um, that's been my kind of motto for most of my life. But that's me. And other people, I'm not going to tell people how to live their lives. I just want to support people in learning the skills they need so they can have the lives that they want. And I think that things like self-awareness are really important. How are you 
you know, and, and social awareness, how are you being perceived by people? You know, are you arrogant and does that turn people off? Are you just saying things that are negatively impacting, you know, how people feel about you? These are all important things to be aware of because, you know, we all have a reputation and, you know, it's nice to have a reputation where people want to help you achieve your goals as opposed to derail you. What, what, do you, what do you think is the hardest part of what you're, what you're trying to do? I think the hardest part is convincing people at the deepest level that all emotions are information, that there's no such thing as a bad feeling, that you can experience strong, unpleasant feelings like anger and anxiety, and it's not a bad thing. Oftentimes, it's a good thing, right? During the pandemic, people who are more anxious were more likely to wear masks. Actually, we have a big study that we were showing that people who reported being happy all the time took more risks and actually were more likely to get COVID. And so um, yeah. happiness can you know, backfire for you because it makes you think, oh, I don't have to worry about anything when indeed there is something to worry about. Yeah. Um, anger, I think during the last few years has been one of the most important emotions for many people to experience. You know, we've seen, you know, a tremendous amount of inequity in our society and people should be fighting for equality. And um, I like the Ruth Bader uh, RBG. She says, I, I'm going to get it wrong now. Fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that gets other people to follow. And I love yeah. that. This yeah. of like injustice and anger, right? You're going to push people. You're going to push people, but figure out a way to get other people to follow you so that you actually achieve your goals. Because other people don't follow you. It's hard to achieve your goals. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you alienate too many people in the process. If you could go back to, to your younger self when you were in school, what, what, what would be the one thing you you would tell yourself other than invest in Apple stock <laughs> Amazon, actually. Uh, or Amazon, which I bought when I was just trying to figure out and then yeah. obviously didn't keep it. Otherwise I wouldn't be talking to you today. <laughs> it's okay. I'm not proud. Um, I guess if I were to talk to my younger self, Gosh, this is a tough one. I haven't been asked this one, I don't think. You know, my younger self had low self-esteem. My younger self lived in a lot of fear. Um, and I guess I would tell my younger self that based on everything that you experienced, how you felt was just fine and okay. But there's hope because there are people out there who, who want to see you succeed. There are people who you can seek in life to help you succeed and to hold on to your dreams. Yeah. That's, that's, and, and, you know, I think, uh, well, you know how the movie played out and I think it's played out. It's played out well, Mark. <laughs> so look, wrong works in progress, just so you know. Um, listen, we're, we're really looking forward to, to welcoming you to, Doha in a couple of weeks for the Wise 2021 summit. What what are you hoping to to get out of the summit, and what are you looking looking forward to? I'm looking forward to being around other like minded people um, that are not in my immediate circle. It's been a while because of COVID, and I haven't been. And this will be my first big international conference in a couple of years, so I'm just excited about that. I'm excited to see a new culture and society. I'm excited to have other people's presentations and ideas spark more curiosity in me. 
Well, that's, I think that's a great place for us to, to, to conclude our conversation. It's been, uh, it's been fun talking to you. And again, really looking forward to uh, welcoming you here and to, uh, and to WISE 2021. So, Mark, thank you. Thank you for your wise words. <laughs> that's for you to say, not for me to say. <laughs> Thanks. This is Basim Hajazi, producer of the Wise Words podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in to the show where we discuss all things education with some of the world's leading thinkers and doers. What did you think of this episode with Mark Brackett? With the conclusion of this episode, we're wrapping up our pre-2021 WISE Summit limited series titled Unmute Education. We touched upon various topics including youth leadership, climate change education, outcome-based funding, well-being, and social-emotional learning. Do check out the previous two episodes if you haven't done so already to get a bit more on that. While this is the end of Unmute Education, this certainly isn't the end for Wise Words. We'll be back in the near future with new episodes to share following the 2021 Wise Summit. Be sure to secure your place by registering online on our website now on www.wise-qatar.org for access to our online platform. The 2021 Wise Summit takes place in Doha, Qatar and virtually online between 7 to 9 December 2021. Don't miss out. For more information, check out the links in the show notes. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in and hope to see you again next time on Wise Words.